The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, almost qualified, the nations battling to reach the World Cup. Barely qualified, Stevie G and Lamps preparing to take over at Villa and Norwich. We get the latest on all of that from the road to Qatar to Carrow Road. Plus, the greatest football team in the world. And now is the winter of this content, the boom in football behind the scenes docos and what it all means. All of that in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Thursday the 11th of November, a listener, and yes, we're up extra early for this international break show, because we're excited, and we've assembled an all-star cast for it as well, top, top people, live from his Manhattan loft, it's the New York Times' Rory Smith. West Yorkshire more than Manhattan, but apart from that, hello. Rory, yeah. Live from Belfast, it's the European football editor of the Daily Mirror, Colin Miller. Hello, James. Hello to you, and... Live from an unspecified area of West London, it's the Athletics, James Horncastle. Hello. All right. Is that generic enough for you, James? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fine by me. Good. I'll take okay. that. All right. Listen, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, question one, how come you guys aren't off on holiday like everyone else we tried? I, I was trying, and then uh, I got a, a WhatsApp, and, you know, and here these you WhatsApps are. are hard to turn down. So. Boy, I'll say. All right, well, it is International Week, obviously, which means a different rhythm, I think, uh, for many of us, and certainly to the football. Um, before we get on to the qualifiers, because they are absolutely huge and, in so many cases, decisive uh, this weekend, let's just get a few last gasps of Premier League oxygen, if you will, before we dive into the whirling waters of the International Weekend. Uh, first off, a bit of injury news, a couple of big stories. Angelo Ogbonna. Some fears he may miss the rest of the season for West Ham after damaging his cruciate knee ligaments in West Ham's win over Liverpool on Sunday. Also, potentially having played his last for Manchester United, Paul Pogba. Out until the new year with a hamstring injury picked up in training with France, they say. Is that a real story or is it just one that plays well with fan sentiment algorithms? No, that's true. But played his last makes it sound like he's leaving in January, which isn't true good to slam those reports it's it's interesting and unlikely that Ogbonna is a bigger loss to West Ham in the chase for a Champions League place than Paul Pogba is to Manchester United that seems a weird thing to say but I think it's probably true isn't it well Ogbonna has been such a such a key part of West Ham's sort of attack and set piece threat as well and we've spoken about how how important that's been for David Moyes and I think the partnership he's formed with Kurt Zuma is, has been so impressive and you look at the other options West Ham have, and you've only really got Craig Dawson, who, who's who's well into his thirties. You kind of think is he going to be able to cope with two or three matches a week over, over the winter months? And yeah, yeah the guy said Diop as well, who seems to have fallen out of favour. But West, it's West Ham squad, isn't it? And with, with their sort of Europa League demands, and they're they're going far in the League Cup as well. You kind of think that one or two injuries could really prove a big setback. Whereas you look at Man United, and you could feasibly replace Paul Pogba with Donny Van de Beek. And I kind of wonder if this. Pogba injury will open up the opportunity for Van de Beek, especially with the position that Solskjaer has found himself in. And I think on, mm. on Saturday against City, he kind of heard a little bit of fan discontent around the Van de Beek situation. So it could pressurise that. I mean, it should, but but it won't, will it? Just for some reason, Donny Dunne Solskjaer really doesn't want Donny van de Beek to play football at any point. That seems to be... Unless, unless Rory, it's not Oli Gunnar Solskjaer making the decision. Because I don't know if you saw Oli losing the red wall, as it were, uh, with Rio <laughs> coming out, yeah, coming out uh, for the uh, time to go camp. Uh, the reports now that it's a question of when, not if, with Brendan Rodgers being lined up to take over. I found the way that Ferdinand announced his position really odd. It was a bit like when the president of the CBI or like a major union used to come out and declare who they were supporting in in, in like a Tory or Labour election. As mm-hmm. though it was, it was kind of, it was branded with his five logo, wasn't it? It was kind of, finally, Rio delivers Ollie verdict. When really, it's just a bloke saying some stuff about another bloke. Right. That's all it is. There's not actually, like Rio Ferdinand doesn't have any kind of 
core voting right. power on the on the salute on the situation. I thought yeah, pop, I think the way that, calling the kettle black though, Rory. Very much so, yeah, artists. absolutely. I mean, yeah, but I don't trail my pronouncements with "finally, Rory Smith delivers verdict." The, um, <laughs> the although actually, having said that, do you now not? That, now that I say it, I, I don't know why I don't. I should do that. That would make sense. No, I, I think that it's interesting how the whole Solskjaer <laughs> discussion has become about his former teammates and their opinions of him. When mm. really, that's I mean, at best, tangential to the whole conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think we've 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 reached a new. Uh, we've broken through our own wall here because I think we have a, a debate amongst ourselves about how to promote our own content, and, uh, and and some of it is you know sort of how many emojis do we use, and and maybe this 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 kind of proclamation, is is the way to get the attention because it clearly has, but is it just bloke speaking about bloke when basically it feels like uh, United do everything that Rio says, you know. He was the one who said sign the thing, and they signed the thing. He was the one who said sign Cristiano Ronaldo, and you know put his video on Twitter, on Twitter, nodding with you know knowingly. So you know, I'm not going to say that uh, that they act on everything that uh, Rio says and thinks, um, but they seem sensitive to it. Um, mm. You could say. I think that's 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 a, a wider trend for for English football though, that these sort of former players who've, who've gone into punditry and, and they obviously go on to say things on TV and there's a lot of weight given to what they say in terms of how it's played out over over social media and over various websites and how, how they report on it as well. And I don't think that's really quite the same as it would be in, say, Italy or Spain or, or, or France, I think. I think the weight of what they say is important. And I think as well with how these football clubs operate, and especially Manchester United, we know that they pay so much attention to, to what people are saying, what people are discussing. And, and it's almost like people are now discussing what the pundits are discussing and what Gary Neville will or won't say or, or what Rio Ferdinand's position is. So I, I think the, these statements do carry more weight than they would have done in the past or, or they do elsewhere at the moment. Possibly because you've got groups of owners who are essentially dislocated from the fan base you know, geographically or just by sheer dint of the fact that they have absolutely no connection socially with them. And, and therefore these kind of figureheads act as a, you know, a, a useful kind of touchstone for them, or at least they feel that they do. It's interesting. I remember when I first started as a football journalist uh, for the Mirror, I was really surprised to go to, go to like night games particularly, and you'd see see journalists with dictaphones. Then dictaphones for younger listeners were like a little thing that looked a bit like a phone, but you couldn't make calls or go on the internet on it. But you could. It was like the voice memo app, but in a piece of actual hardware. And they'd hold them up to the TV for the post match quotes, and that would be the first they would be the first edition quotes would be you know Roy Keane or I wouldn't mean Keane then I suppose but Sooners or whoever said says this Alan Hansen says this about whatever game had just happened and it was it was a, a piece of journalistic necessity because you had a 9:30 or a 10 o'clock deadline so you had to have something on the back page from a big game i think what Colin's talking about is absolutely right that we do place a lot of weight on what pundits say but i think a lot of that comes from the fact that the, the pundits they were basically, they were on before the press conferences, traditionally. So it was an easy way to get cop to get basically holding copy. And for some reason, that tradition has maintained itself, even though we now have the internet. And we don't really need these these external sort of provocations from the telly. I mean, it's, it's content being created from content. It's meta content. And that is odd that we, you know, a lot of the time these aren't, James might be right with Rio that he, he he does seem to carry a bit of weight with with Manchester United, but a lot of the time these these are yeah they're they're, dis, they're irrelevances and distractions from the from the actual core of what's happened, but they do really set the agenda. But I think that's less to do with how important or insightful those comments are, and more to do with the convention that journalists would record those quotes and put them in their newspapers to fill a hole until something actually interesting happened. I mean, it is a cultural thing. In if you look at US sports. Uh, the access, not just to players and managers, but to just executives, uh, public-facing executives, is just non-existent in the Premier League. Where in Italy and in Spain, you would have a sporting director come out and speak every, uh, before every game, uh, and you'd be able to pose questions to them. And most of the time, they would lie. You know, Andrea Pirlo has <laughs> got a three-year contract at Juventus. He will be our manager for as long as possible. Blah blah blah. Um, and we just we, we just don't have have that. So again, that gives a, 
disproportionate importance to basically uh, pundits, you know, whoever, when it comes to making these various proclamations, and and yeah, they become they become part of the contents thing that we all then react on, which we are doing now. Mm, content from content from content, Colin. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a, the TV coverage knows what it's doing with this as well. Especially, Sky Sports have become the masters of this for three decades, and it's, it's why the Premier League now has so much more money because of how the league's marketed itself. But the TV companies know that it's almost like what happens in the studio has become as as important as what happens on the pitch. And even in Saturday's game, United against City, it was, it was largely a non-event. Yet you had fantastic entertainment from Roy Keane, from Graham Souness, from Mika Richards as well, and and even the Monday night football with Gary Neville and Jimmy Carragher and the depth that they go into is is fantastic but but people are really attracted to that sort of thing and so I, I think I think it's a, it's a combination of all these factors and it's fed into the, the, the culture that's what that's made it's made the Premier League what it is it's the Paddy Power football supporters support line and we're speaking to Kevin in Dagenham Kevin what's your issue mate it's the hardware stores isn't it they're all out of white emotion uh sorry Kevin what's that got to do with football pal well it's international break mate and I'd rather watch paint dry You can make the international break that bit more exciting with Paddy Power's Bet Builder. Get money back as a free bet if one leg of your Bet Builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pretty much online Bet Builders with min two legs only. Max one free £5 bet per customer. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. It does look like the Premier League is going to have a very different look when it gets back together because, of course, two new managers are coming in. Uh, fans of Naughty's overlapping midfield roles type humour, or all of us essentially, will be excited that those two managers look like being Stephen Gerrard, who's interested apparently in the vacant villa job, while Frank Lampard in talks to take over at Norwich. Crikey. Hands up who's excited. My hand's up, listener. You can't see it, but it is. And nobody else. But I, I'm excited for all of us. Gerrard, what is it with Villa? testing our cognitive dissonance. First, they bring in JT, Chelsea legend, and paint him in Villa colours. And now they're going to do it to cut him and he bleeds cop Stephen Gerrard. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of Liverpool at Villa, isn't there? There's Christian Preslow, the chief executive, um, who was there for a lot of uh, Gerrard's time uh, at Anfield. Supposedly get on very well, very fond of, uh, well, I think Preslow's very fond of Gerrard. And so, yeah, there's someone advocating for that there. Um, even though they 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 have a different they have a they have a sporting director of their own who might have candidates of his own. Um, so okay, it's it's a curious one. I think we'll probably get into you know whether he should stick or twist with the job that he's got at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But you can see why he's he's clearly come up at Villa. I mean, it looks like the latest reports, this is Wednesday night as we record it, it looks like it's going to happen. Yeah, it does. And I think from from Gerard's perspective, it, it makes sense. It looks a little like he might have... He, he's accomplished what he went to Scotland to do. I think that's probably fair to say. He stopped Celtic winning 10 in a row. He's dropped Rangers' 55th title. Which order of importance those are to Rangers fans is very much up to the Rangers fans. But he's, he's, trying to, he's turned Rangers back into a force in Scotland... And that was what he set out to do. And I think because of the financial limitations at Rangers in particular and in Scottish football as a whole, that he probably will be looking at that and thinking it, it won't ever get, get as good again. Realistically, that there's a reasonable chance, greater than 50-50, that they'll win the title this season just because of Celtic's start. Um, they've done well in Europe, but they're not going to win the Europa League. That's not going to happen for Rangers. So... From Gerard's point of view, I can see why he thinks this might be the time to jump. I think from Villa's point of view, it's much more of a risk because still not entirely clear to me, admittedly someone who's not watched Rangers every week, what what sort of coach Gerard's going to be. I think he's he's more likely to see himself as a manager, whereas as 
as James has mentioned, Villa do have a sporting director system and they've got a lot of kind of data usage in the background. There's, there's, there's quite a smart setup overall at Villa, I think. Um, Dean Smith was happy within that within that structure. I don't know whether how Gerard will will feel about it. It may be that he's totally okay with it and that's fine. Um, it may be that he wants things to work a bit differently and that can cause problems. So I think it makes it makes sense from Gerard's point of view if you assume that Stephen Gerrard's ultimate ambition is to manage Liverpool, which I think is probably fair right. enough. Um, Villa do make sense as a and it's it's strange to say it as a you know former champion of Europe, you know one of the biggest six clubs in England historically. Villa do make sense at this point as a bit of a stepping stone into into one of those those true elite jobs. But from mm. Villa's point of view, I'm not sure he'd be the candidate I'd go for. But then I'm not sure I'd have sat Dean Smith, so maybe I'm not the best judge. All right. Do you know what happens on the 11th of December? I'm guessing that Villa goes Wanfield. That's correct, Rory. Woof. You got a nose for narrative. Colin. I actually disagree with Rory on this. I think this is a bigger risk for Gerard than it is for Villa. I think that yes, Steven Gerrard's gone and he's won and he's won a league title. He ended that Celtic period of dominance. But as things stand at the minute, Rangers are the best team in Scotland. Celtic are still in in somewhat of a transitional phase, and he's got the opportunity to go on and win more trophies at the moment and to build somewhat of a dynasty I mean I don't know if that's maybe overstating things a little bit but I've been really impressed with with how he's handled himself at Rangers and, and not just in terms of the domestic success which you could you could argue is, is partly down to, to what's happened across the city but how Rangers have performed in Europe has, has really shown Gerard and his coaching staff who I believe are, are going to be going with him to Villa um, according to the reports that, that, that these are sort of modern progressive style of coaching and, and, and a way of playing and, and that's something that's something that stood out for me that Reinter's success in Europe. I think they were the first Scottish team in over a decade to win a, a knockout match in in Europe um, after the group stages. So his his achievements have been good. He's obviously a very young manager. He's got a lot to learn. But I think Villa as a club are, are more of a risk at the minute in the sense that they've only got ten points from their opening eleven matches, and and obviously the sale of Grealish in the summer. There are fourteen matches in the Premier League last year without Grealish, only got thirteen points. So they're averaging less than a point a game without him in the team. And yes. They are an ambitious club who have invested heavily and quite well, in my opinion. But if Gerard makes a mistake at Rangers, and I think I think they've maybe slightly regressed this season, but that isn't really picked up upon so much within, let's say, the Liverpool fan base. But if you're if you're in the Premier League and you're struggling, especially for a club of Villa's stature, those little mistakes will will get amplified more. So I think this is a risk for him in the sense that the timing of it. It's probably earlier than he expected and would have been ideal for him to have. But I think it's a really interesting appointment and I'd be interested to see just how, just just what he can do with this Aston Villa team. I think there's a lot of potential there. I just wonder what he can achieve with Villa um, because, you know, it's one thing to be at Rangers, potentially retaining your title, uh, winning a trophy, as, as, as Colin was saying, making your knockout stages of, of, uh, of a European competition again, where... That's where they've caught my eye um, for three years, you know, sort of topping a group that had Benfica in it, you know, Benfica more often than not in the Champions League rather than the Europa League, going undefeated in both games against them. I've been generally impressed. They were unlucky not to make the Champions League group stages. Uh, they were they were better than Malmo, um, ultimately. So I think in, in some respects, there's, there's more opportunity to keep catching the eye at Rangers um, because he's Stephen Gerrard and Rangers. Yeah, so you've got a massive person, massive club that will make headlines and will still be talked about. At Villa, I think everyone says it's a really good job. And I do think it's, it, it, it's one of the better jobs out there in, in terms of history and tradition, in terms of uh, resources, um, and even in the squad, you know, as, as much as Grealish has gone, I, th- I, I do think there are signings that more can come from them. Um, but, yeah, what's going to be success for Steven Gerrard at, at Aston Villa? Is it a cup run? Is it, is it not getting relegated? I think there's, there's more risk to just be much of a muchness being at Villa rather than staying at, at Rangers. Because ultimately, when the Liverpool job comes up, he will be in the frame. He will be in. He will be in the frame. I, I would. I would think. Do you think straight from Rangers without another job yeah. under his belt? Well, yeah. It's, yeah. I, th- I think even with very sensible owners, analytics based, I think they will still be guided by what fans think, uh, because because ultimately that's why they pulled out the Super League. 
and we see it all the time. Even at big clubs who've had great success, um, who've, who've, who've made good decisions to get to sort of preeminent, dominant positions, they do make these decisions ultimately. So, you know, um, you know, I question why Barcelona have gone for Xavi um, right. from 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 Sad. Not not enough kind of what he represents, idea, how well he articulates his ideas, blah blah blah. But at the same time, I don't really understand what Xavi has done. Uh, Al Sad, which is less than what, say, Steven Gerrard has done at Rangers. I mean, James, have you have you not seen th- that move that they put together that was on Twitter? That that <laughs> why Xavi stopped the job. I mean, what more, what more do you want? The, I think that's a really good point that, that James makes and and Colin too. That the problem Gerrard's got. I'm not convinced Liverpool would give him the job straight from Rangers. I, I think they might think that's too much of a leap. I think Gerrard's thinking is to an extent that he, he that he would need another job in between to be able to do the Liverpool job well, not just to get it, but to be able to do it well. But the problem he's got is that that kind of top four, top six to an extent, don't really see themselves as being related to everybody else in the Premier League. They're, you know, they, they hire from Borussia Dortmund or from one of the other European giants or they take Antonio Conte, who's, who's just left Inter or whatever. They, they don't look at kind of managers who've done well in, with mid-table sides, taking someone from 14th to 7th and think that is adequate preparation. So I think the issue for Gerard more than anything is what, what does he need to do at Villa to get the Liverpool job or to, to, to convince Liverpool's owners that he is now ready for the Liverpool job because that success for Villa is a cup run or, a, or avoiding relegation or finishing ninth. That is probably success for Villa at this point. That isn't the sort of success that is going to, to make Liverpool's owners think, OK, he is now ready. And mm-hmm. I'm not actually sure there is a form of success available to Aston Villa manager, whoever it is, that would be looked at by any of the top four as adequate preparation. Frank Lampard, advanced talks, I'm hearing. That's my information. There's the your sources, Chelsea. James. Wow. <laughs> Let me just open the tab. Um, anyway, so uh, the former Chelsea boss to take over at Carrow Road. Uh, it's got a little bit lost, but he had a really good full season in charge of Chelsea, taking them to fourth, reaching an FA Cup final. Is this a good fit, everyone? I'd be inclined to say yes. I think it's it's a difficult situation for him because of where they are in the league, but it, it feels like it's it's kind of where he he needs to be at this stage in his managerial development. I'm I'm not sure you can draw any particularly strong conclusions from what happened at Chelsea. Right. Other than is it a bit it, of a hospital it, pass though in terms of an appointment, Rory, with with, with uh, the record they're on he, and the squad they've got and. Not the squad. The squad's not great, but you you have January and there are there there are talented players there. It would have been much more of a hospital pass had Daniel Farker not beaten Brentford in his last game. I mm. think that that just gives a glimmer of being salvageable. But yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult job. But by the same token, he's at a club that has proven it will it will not sack him if they get relegated. It will give him chance to build again in the Championship. So from that point, long, this season, yes, it's a bit of a hospital pass. Longer term, I'm not sure it is. The Norwich situation is so interesting, though, in the sense that right now, as how we view it, any manager who comes in, and even if they go down with, with, with how the situation is at the moment, you're like, well, that's not really on them. You know, they're they're inheriting a squad that probably isn't quite good enough for the Premier League. It's a very difficult situation, but no manager will want that on their CV. It's the same with players. It'll be difficult to attract managers. It'll be difficult to attract players in this situation, and you don't want to be in that battle. And the thing for Lampard as well is that. Right, if Norwich do go down, there's going to be so much pressure and expectation that they will be promoted automatically the next season because that that is what they've they've done in their past two years in the Championship. And listen, Norwich are obviously a club who are, who are very sensibly run. I think I think they're probably a model um, for for those clubs that sort of are the yo-yo between the top flight and the Championship, and that they never really commit to spending and they're loyal to their to their staff. But it's a difficult one for a manager in terms of I think you need to have a lot of self-belief that you can get this right and you can buy in to a longer term project. And I I think you're right in the sense that maybe we have forgotten that Frank Lampard, I don't think he did a great job at Chelsea, but I don't think he did a terrible one either. I, I think it's just it was quite obvious, certainly in the second season, that the expectations of of what the club wanted and what they'd invested was maybe a little bit beyond him. But for a longer term project, which maybe Norwich could offer, it's something that where he could, he can maybe build his own team and, and really set his his sort of football and methods and principles within that. I th- I think it could be a good fit for him in that sense. All right, 
Uh, as I mentioned, the Premier League will have a very fresh look when things get going again, because also Eddie Howe is now confirmed at Newcastle. Uh, ooh, one tweak, one little twist to this uh, this week is the fact that uh, he may be joined there by uh, the sporting director of Liverpool, Michael Edwards, who announced that he was, quote, packing up his laptop Beyond wherever he ends up, Michael Edwards, how big a loss is this to Liverpool, given that he's the, the guy credited with finding Salah, Van Dijk, Allison, Manny and many others? I think it would be a big surprise uh, for him to go to a club like Newcastle, I think, from just what from what I've heard. And I, think, I believe that his next decision would be unorthodox. I don't think setting up a, a, a club uh, like Newcastle with the wealth that they have really appeals to him. I might be wrong. So there's that. In terms of his impact at Liverpool, um, yeah, Rory's written about this, about how yeah, ingrained and how they've really kind of bet on uh, the importance of, of analytics and their kind of recruitment model at that club. I think the manager is a massive part of it as well, though. Uh, and mm. and, and it, will be, it will be very interesting to say because we, we have seen, we've seen Klopp do this um, at Dortmund, at other clubs, um, where he has made uh, a club greater than the sum of its parts. And it's very interesting to then see those other parts move and and, and, and analyse and assess what they do elsewhere. Um, because it's true that, for example, Salah has gone to another level. I think we all knew Salah was a, was a very good player. Um, we just didn't know that Klopp could get this out of him. Um, same with Alisson. Um, same with Van Dijk. Yeah, there are other other signings that I would look at and think, wow, that's that's even more impressive. Andy Robertson, for example, things like that. But it is interesting when these these structures break apart and you get to see what what the various components do next, and then you can kind of make an even better assessment of of, of what they brought. I think losing Edwards is a, is a is a blow. I think he's he's had a massive kind of personal impact on the way that that Liverpool work. He's a big figure in everything they've done, not just in recruitment, but kind of in the structures they've put in place in the club. He's he's not been alone in that, but I think he is a big part of it and it would be disingenuous to pretend otherwise. Losing him is a blow to Liverpool. Um, I agree with James. I'm not convinced that he will go to a club. I think he might do something different um, whenever he chooses his his next step. The counterbalance to that is that, that Liverpool have always been really clear that there's loads of different people involved in their recruitment in their recruitment process, particularly that it's not just Edwards, Klopp and, and Mike Gordon, who I think is the president. I think that might be his, t- his title. There's, you know, there's a there's a whole data team. There's 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 Barry Hunter and Dave Fallows, the scouts. There's there's lots and lots of different people inputting different bits of information as there should be and Edwards was in charge of corralling that and influencing I guess which bits of that were given greater weight that that was his judgment and that's the bit they've lost but all of the other stuff remains in place that there is it's the system doesn't fall apart because Edwards is there that there's not he is not kind of the guru as like Graham Carr was at Newcastle or Steve Walsh at Leicester where once they go or once they're their contact book stops producing that everything falls apart. That's not that's not what is in place at Liverpool. So I'm not convinced that him going means Liverpool will immediately start being dreadful in the transfer market. And equally, I'm not necessarily convinced that if he went to another club, mm. he would immediately be able to replicate what he'd done at Liverpool. I'm sure he'd he'd have a good go in time because he's clearly very talented. But the the system and the structure is what has allowed Liverpool to succeed. It's not just the specific identities of the people behind the scenes. And it's it's really interesting as well that Liverpool's sort of transfer business over the past seven or eight years has been heralded as, as, as how a, a big club or an elite club should should be run. And if, if we sort of cast our minds back to, to the discussion about the sort of transfer committee, this was, a, this was a topic that was always controversial. And I think it was something that a lot of managers and even head coaches didn't didn't particularly like because there were so many voices in terms of recruitment and so many, there were so many different angles coming at this. And there often there wasn't really a clear consensus on what the club should do. And I remember as well that Jurgen Klopp wasn't entirely convinced in this either. And I know that there were reports that that Klopp and Edwards sometimes were at odds with which players to sign. And and one of those was infamously Salah in, in the summer of 2017. And, and Klopp says, look, you know, I, I would rather get Julian Brandt um, from Bayer Leverkusen at the time. And Edwards is like, no, the, like, you need to look at Salah's underlying numbers and what he's done. And the fact that he had that time at Chelsea, which, which almost 
devalued him, certainly in the eyes of English clubs. And he this this was something that behind the scenes there was they knew Salah's personality and his drive to become what we now know him as. So that was a really significant moment. And I think sort of from that moment onwards, uh, Klopp certainly became a lot more trusting of of, of the the team behind it all and what what they were coming up with. So. Edwards, Edwards has played such a key role in all of this and we talk all, always about the signings which have been largely magnificent but you look at Liverpool's seals and the amount of money hmm. and transfer fees they, they've risen from from players who, who were barely even squad players and, and they've come through and they're selling for 10 or 15 million pounds each and of course the Coutinho seal to, to Barcelona was, was well in excess of 100 million and those deals essentially funded the signings of Van Dijk, of Fabinho, of Alisson, of Salah and, like I think it's that sort of it was that business model combined with the analytical side of recruitment, which, which really worked a treat in that period of time. But I think I think for every club, it's inevitable that these these changes and these sort of refreshes need 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 to be made almost certainly from a personal point of view and a club point of view, just to just to ensure that things don't become not not steel, but but that there's always fresh voices and that there's always they're always trying to keep ahead of the game and and that's that's the big challenge for. For Liverpool now, I think. Mm. All right, fascinating stuff. Well, next up, let's leave the uh, the world of the Premier League and head off to the World Cup qualifiers. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which might just come in handy when Brighton start being Brighton again and go back to outperforming their XG and not winning. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18's only. And please, gamble responsibly. All right then, listener. You stay with us this far. Here we go. Let's get on to those World Cup qualifiers. Thursday night, the final decisive round of matches begins. For the winners, automatic spots at the next World Cup. For the losers, the consolation of a place on the moral high ground from which they can pretend not to watch this morally challenging tournament next winter. Now, uh, Germany and Denmark are already booked for Qatar. Among the sides sweating their places are Spain and Italy. Also Netherlands, Croatia, Russia and Portugal... So for a quick roundup of the matches that matter, let's have some vibes, producer Charlie. Spain are two points behind Sweden. They face each other on Sunday, but not before on Thursday the Swedes visit Georgia and Spain go to Greece. On Friday, England face Albania, Scotland travel to Moldova, a win will see them qualify for a playoff, while in Rome it's Italy-Switzerland, with the two teams currently level on points. It's a spareggio. Saturday, drama in Group G, where three teams can make top spot. Netherlands, only two points ahead of Norway, who are two points above Turkey. The Dutch head to Montenegro, while their Scando rivals host Latvia and Turkey host Gibraltar. Sunday is possibly the most dramatic day of all. First off, Croatia face Russia. The Russians two points clear of Zlatko Dalic's side, so it should be quite an atmosphere in split. Then Sunday evening, Portugal face Serbia. Cristiano Ronaldo trying to qualify for his fifth World Cup. Portugal, though, trailing Serbia by one point, but they play at Ireland on Thursday. While Sunday night in Seville, it's that aforementioned Spain against Sweden. Sweden, now with the 40-year-old Zlatan Ibrahimovic back in their squad, in the same Sevilla stadium where these two teams drew nil-nil in June at Euro 2020. Crikey. Wow. Uh, Exactly four years ago, remember? Who was it who ousted Italy in the playoffs to qualify for the 2018 World Cup? (gasps) Colin, it was Sweden. How worried are they in Spain? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Spain's uh, situation is so precarious at the minute. Obviously, they have these two matches coming up against the two teams who they have stumbled against in, in the group. Um, and Spain have stumbled against Sweden, obviously, in the Euros as well. And they really, I think, need to realistically win both of these matches. And they need to do it without a host of uh, of star players, uh, especially in attack. There's no Ansu Fati. There's no Ferran Torres, there's no Gerard Moreno, there's no Mikel Oyarzabal. They're probably their four standout attacking players and there's not a lot of pressure on Alvaro Morata to once again uh, to step up and, and to and to, to really to really put his daughters behind him. And, and Morata has had such a tough time with the Spanish crowd and and I think often this is, this is how it's portrayed in the media that it's almost like this this constant drama uh, going on where he has these incredible highs and these, these these terrible lows where he's either responsible for for, for a penalty miss or for a glaring a glaring miss from from point blank range or he scores this fantastic goal to, to keep his team in the tournament so they're, they're, they this is a really big challenge for Luis Enrique it's a really big challenge for Spain and like we've seen them in the in the Euros whereby they reached the semi-finals and were outstanding against Italy and then again in the Nations League where they enjoy playing these big teams but it's the teams like Greece, like the teams like Sweden, who are happy to, to not have the ball, um, to soak up pressure and to hit them on the counter-attack. And Sweden's star player is Alexander Isak, who uh, Spanish fans know all about through his exploits with Real Sociedad this season. And he is a, he is an absolutely outstanding player, an outstanding prospect. And they're, they're really going to need to know how to how to defend against him on, on the counter-attack especially. In light of what you were saying there, the, the previous clash with the Greeks, so they'll be facing on Thursday at home, was a 1-1 draw. Spain with 80% possession, uh, Greece scoring with their only shot of the entire game. Crikey. That same night, Sweden travelled to Georgia. You could even see the Swedes going out of sight before we even get to Sunday's game. Extraordinary. A World Cup without Spain if they didn't get through a playoff. Rory? <laughs> yeah, I think the funny thing is it's really built to... To a really nice kind of conclusion, this set, this set of World Cup qualifiers. Just, I mean, obviously, apart from England's group where they, they'll beat Albania and qualify, there's kind of interest everywhere, really, isn't there? That, you know, that Serbia playing Portugal is fascinating, mm. although by that stage, the Portuguese should really be in a position where a draw will take them through. But still, there is that possibility that Portugal end up in the playoffs. Italy facing Switzerland is fascinating. But the, the one that really has caught my eye for the last month is, is that Dutch-Norway-Turkey group. Do they've okay. all got relatively winnable games in this week's fixtures they sh- they should all really win and then next week the Norwegians go to Amsterdam and it, it may well be that that's a straight shootout for for top spot the Norwegians haven't been to a major tournament for 20 years they've got this this brilliant sort of coming generation with the one star player who's injured and you know that the, they, they would have been going to Amsterdam I think thinking they could maybe win if if Holland was there but without him it suddenly becomes a lot more challenging. So I think that is the group that where there's, it feels like there's the most riding on it. Just look, if, if the Italians stumble, James mm. might not say it like this, but if the Italians stumble against Switzerland, they'll get a playoff and there's a decent chance they'll get through. Same with the Spanish, really. The Spanish would, would back themselves against pretty much anybody, I guess, apart from Italy, uh, in a playoff. But with the Norwegians, they could conceivably finish third and not get a playoff at all because the Turks would overtake them. So... The whole that whole group is incredibly precariously balanced, and it's it is fascinating, which is not something you often say about international football. It's almost like it's worth going through <laughs> the eighteen months of sheer boredom to get to this one one set of fixtures. But we've had so many highs along the way, Rory. I have to say, regarding playoffs, I kind of was assuming myself that it the big teams would go through, but they're one-legged playoffs. And if you take the example of Spain, uh, to take one, a team that only drew against the Greeks a team that hasn't beaten Sweden in any of its last three meetings with them, a team that fails to beat teams that they should beat necessarily in mm. single one-off matches. So all the bets are off. Let's let, let's talk then about Italy-Switzerland. They meet at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome on Friday. They are level on points at the top of Group C. Uh, they've both got plenty of absentees. The last five meetings, James, four of them have been drawn. Hmm. Historically, it's a tight game, although they should have won the reverse fixture in September. Um, Jorginho missed a penalty. Uh, and, you know, obviously when they last met at the Stadio Olimpico, they, they beat them 3-0. Um, things have changed since then. Switzerland have changed their manager. Petkovic is gone. 
um, and they've got a number of absentees themselves um, because Italy go into this game pretty depleted. Um, but I have so much strength and depth that even if Angelo Ogbonna was fit, but Ogbonna wouldn't be in the squad. Um, mm. And I think uh, Bonner's had some grievances about that. I felt he should have been in contention in, for the Euro squad and presumably for September and October as well. Um, Chiellini dropped out today, but then again, Chiellini got injured after, what, five, ten minutes of the Switzerland game and Ached came in for him and did pretty well. Verratti was missing when they played uh, in the Euros. Uh, he's missing again tonight. It, it, it didn't really matter then because... What were people crying for? More Locatelli, because Locatelli scored twice um, against against the Swiss. Immobile's fit, but again, you know, he he was kind of uh, venting before he suffered his injury on 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 Wednesday uh, because he was put up to the media on Tuesday. So you know, there are people who don't think he's any good, even though he's won the the, the, the golden shoe, even though he's you know sort of been top scorer in Italy three times. Um, I think only Gunnar Nordahl has has actually done that more. Um, so, yeah, they'll find it. I think the, the thing that they have in their favour compared with, you know, when they didn't qualify for the World Cup last time around was that they had a manager who was incapable of managing big moments uh, in Champiero Ventura um, and incapable of managing big players. Uh, and certainly at, at, at the Euros in the summer, I think one of the things that people around Mancini said that was very good about him was how he kept his composure uh, under pressure for example, half-time against England, you know, you, you could have said in the final, for example, could say, right, we need to change formation, we need to make some substitutions, and instead made a couple of adjustments, said play the same way, and and didn't make any substitutions until what, after the hour mark, and by that time they were back in control um, with possession, crowd got demoralised, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's that's in their favour, um, but obviously it is, you know, it's a, it's a high-stakes Right. It's a high-stakes game. so Just like it was four years ago against the Swedes at San Siro. And, of course, if it does go wrong, it'll come down to those final matches when the Swiss will be at home to Bulgaria and Italy travel to Belfast. I just think that for for Italy, and, and obviously we know what they're about in being European champions, but Switzerland are just such a difficult team to play against. They are so consistent. They are always good. They're rarely great, but they are just such a difficult team to beat. And they are a team who are the second, or sorry, who were the highest second seeds uh, in this qualification system. And I think they should really, they're unlucky that they're not top seeds in the fact that they've been Nations League finalists. They're regulars in the knockout stages of uh, European competition and World Cups. And they're only really ever eliminated on penalties. And this this is a team who are going to be really difficult, even without, even without star players. And at the Euros, they were without Granit Xhaka against Spain, and they were down to 10 men in that game. And they could have won on the penalty shootout. So this is it's a really huge challenge for Italy. But I would imagine that Italy, who then go to Belfast uh, on, on the final match day, they they're, they should win that game. Northern, Northern Ireland are not in, uh, in good form. They... Or, or and again, they're in a bit of a transitional phase. They they haven't won a home game in nine matches, and their two home games in this group have ended nil nil. So, they just don't create enough scoring opportunities. Uh, they don't have a natural goal scorer within the squad, and it's it's a major difficulty. They, of course, this is a game that could suit them in terms of they they will sit sit back and and they they will be relatively well defensively drilled, but. If Italy go for this, if Italy need to win this game, I think Italy will win this game. It won't be high scoring, but I think they'll they'll get the job done. Mm, although the Swiss may fancy their chances at home to Bulgaria. Crikey. Rory, Republic and the home nations. Colin mentioning Northern Ireland there. They're out of it. Republic are out to Scotland. Victory at Moldova will secure a playoff place. Otherwise, it might go down to a nail-biting night at Hampton on Monday against group winners Denmark. Wales, I believe, are pretty much sorted out off the back of their Nations League performance in terms of a playoff. And England, you're confident that they won't lose on Friday night, which might see Poland topping the group ahead of the final round of matches and, oh my goodness, disaster. Yeah, I, I think it's relatively comfortable for England. There is, in a sense, I suppose it's quite nice for an England qualification process that in the last two games there is some sort of jeopardy. That's That feels like it's... It's a good thing, really. I'm sure kind of ardent England fans wouldn't agree, but mm. 
it would feel like a waste of everybody's time from an English perspective if they were to if these were, were two total dead rubbers and they, they were just kind of rubber stamping England's England's presence. So it, it's nice there's some sort of jeopardy, but I don't think any, don't think there's any real jeopardy. The Strots, yeah, a win a win does them in Moldova, uh, and I would expect that to happen. Um, although obviously with Scotland the golden rule is never expect anything. Um, the problem that they will have, and you know, reaching a playoff place is is fantastic for them. But the the caliber of teams they're likely to come up against in the playoffs, which as as you quite rightly say, are, are one legged affairs, that may means that qualification for the actual World Cup is still still quite a long way off. Mm. But it's yeah, they should they should at least get to put themselves in that slightly unfairly weighted lottery. The draw for the slightly unfairly weighted lottery will be made on the twenty sixth of November in Switzerland. I was just going to mention the uh, the Portugal group because uh, I think this has actually been the the most interesting of, of all the groups. I think it's the group that's had the most narratives because right right throughout it, you obviously had Cristiano Ronaldo breaking the international goal scoring record in that dramatic fashion against the Republic of Ireland. Um, but then you've also had the Republic of Ireland situation with the Stephen Kenny position, and he's almost had a mini revival now after the poor results against Azerbaijan and Luxembourg. And Luxembourg, who are probably the most improved. European nation uh, in the past 10 or 15 years whereby they now have two players who are, who are regular starters in the Champions League group stages but the nation who are most interested in that are Serbia who have missed out on each of the last two European championships despite it being expanded to 24 nations so this is a this is a group of players who are extremely talented they've got a lot of players at top clubs and they've got big Ambitions, I suppose, and this is this is a nation who should be regularly in these tournaments. But it was that uh, Nikola Milenkovic uh, sort of freak own goal in Dublin against Republic of Ireland that cost them the victory, cost them two points, and that could end up costing them the the automatic uh, place in this group. And obviously, this is going to go down to the wire with the with the late game against Portugal. But it's it the, the Serbia are just such a strange team that they have so much individual talent, but they've never really been able to, to work it out as a sort of functioning unit. Right. They're one point ahead, I believe, of Portugal. But Portugal have the game in hand Thursday away to the Republic of Ireland. Huge on Sunday night. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's how exciting the international weekend is. Very, um, very shortly, we're going to be hearing about far and away the best football team on the planet. And ooh, also content from content. But first, let's get some odds from Paddy Powers, Carl Monaghan and pretty Sir Charlie. Hello listener, happy November international break to you. There's all sorts of delights for us with the conclusion of the World Cup qualifiers and it's possible that the European champions might have to go through the lottery of the playoffs. We've got Italy versus Switzerland, gelato versus chocolate, pasta versus fondue. Sorry, I missed breakfast. Carl, what's going to happen on the pitch in Rome on Friday night? I've never tried fondue, Charlie, but I have this ambition to stick my face in a big bowl of it. Like Winnie the Pooh attacking a hive of sweet, sweet honey. Where were we, Charlie? Uh, Rome on Friday night. Yes, Italy playing host to the Swiss in Group C. Now, both teams are level on points with two games to play. So the playoffs route, a very real possibility, like you say, Charlie, if Italy don't deliver over the next few days. The Paddy Bear trainers are 1-9, to nine, though, about Italy to win the group. Last time the sides met, it was a scoreless draw. But the Azuri coach, Roberto Mancini, has the majority of his Euro 2020 winning lieutenants fit and available to call upon. While the Swiss are without one of their most influential players in the form of Arsenal bad boy Granite Xhaka and still are guilty of over-relying on the pint-sized assassin Shakiri to score their goals. Price-wise, Italy are no surprise the favourites at 8-15 to win this one. The draw is 11-4 and the Swiss are 5-1. Meanwhile, Spain have two massive games between now and Monday morning that will decide their fate. Greece on Thursday, Sweden on Sunday. Carl, are we looking at two wins out of two for Luis Enrique's men? Or, shock horror, two defeats out of two? Well, Spain are 4-11 to 11 to win the group, but Sweden at 15-8 to 8 to win Group A is not a terrible price either, Charlie, as the Scandinavians have been brilliant so far in this campaign with five wins from six, including beating Spain earlier in the group in Stockholm back in September. But first up on Thursday for Spain, like you point out, is Greece. The Greeks are 8-1 to one to win the game. The draw is 130. And a Spanish win is 2-5. to five. The pressure will be on coach Luis Enrique as the Swedes will be expected to get three points against Georgia on the same night. 
Remember, listeners, Spain have not failed to qualify for a major tournament since 1992. So then Sunday, they play host to Sweden and are odds-on favourites to win at 3-10. to The draw is 15-4 and the visitors are rather big, I think, at 17-2. Depending on what happens in Greece Thursday night, Charlie, Luis Enrique's men may find themselves in a nervy, cagey encounter with one of the best Swedish units we've seen for a while. But it's sit back and enjoy the movie and popcorn for the neutrals, Charlie. So let the games begin. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. So ratings only, terms and conditions apply when the fun stops stop. Match day three in the Women's Champions League took place Tuesday and Wednesday. Chelsea 7-0 winners in Sevilla on Tuesday. Woof. Nice way to warm up for their meeting with rivals Manchester City in the WSL on Sunday. A WSL weekend which also features a North London derby Saturday lunchtime. You can hear much more about that in the Offside Rule podcast. I'm sure they'll find time to talk about Barcelona. What did they do on Wednesday night, Rory? Uh, they they won 4-0, which has taken their um their goals scored this season to 64 and their goals conceded to three. Well, it's not taking their goals conceded to three. They didn't concede any goals. The, um, yeah, they are by some distance at the moment probably the most dominant football team on the planet, Barcelona Femini. They are... Incredible. I went to see them, was in Barcelona for the Dinamo Kiev game and went to speak to a few people around the women's team. And what I found really surprising, the two things that really stood out, one is that their coach is genuinely convinced they haven't scored enough goals, which initially I thought was just like a coach being like very publicly a coach and saying kind of, oh, no, it's not good enough, we can always get better when very clearly you can't get better. But he genuinely meant it. He he says that they kind of, they've created more than 200 opportunities and he doesn't understand why they haven't converted more. And I kind of said, well, the goalkeeper's allowed to make saves. And he, he sort of said, yeah, but what about the ones that go wide? And it's just, I mean, I can't imagine being that driven or ambitious. Uh, and the other thing actually that I thought was fascinating was, was I spoke to Marta Torrejon, who's, who's I think 31 now, she's, she's been there eight years. She said that she'd never really been inside like a professional gym until she was in her mid twenties. Cause she was, she started her career when, when women's football in Spain was almost entirely amateur. Whereas now girls who are kind of 12, 13 are going into a, pro- a professional environment and training. And her view was that, that the talent level is probably the same, but the, the preparation they're getting is is of su- such a high level now compared to what she experienced that they they are already that they'll be hitting the first team substantially further ahead than than she was when she did, and their view is that this is just the start of how good Barcelona Femini can be, which given how good they are is is probably mildly worrying for everybody else. Mm. Well, indeed, uh, you've got a piece up handily, Rory, about Barcelona Femini at the moment. Is that right? I do indeed. Yeah, went yeah. went out on Wednesday. Ah, oh, lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. You've also had another one recently which I enjoyed uh, talking about the rise of, well, to borrow your headline, when soccer is just the storyline. This was uh, Rory's intro. When Hollywood has arrived at Wrexham. Peter Crouch is trying to reproduce Sunderland till I die at Dulwich Hamlet. What happens when a team becomes a stage for a documentary? What comes first, the content or the club? The medium is the massage. You could have gone with for a lot. <laughs> that would have been that would have been better. Yeah, and f- funnily enough, the more emerged after we published it. I, Robbie Savage, I think, has done one at Macclesfield, yes. which I didn't know about. Um, which is Lucky just you. that's just bad journalism. Um, me, not him. I'm sure it's very good. I think it's available now to watch. In fact, it is. There's memes from it already. That is not surprising. Right. But th- there are there are quite a lot of these projects in the work. The, the people will have probably seen the one the, the ones at Salford. I think Fleetwood made one. Uh, there was kind of a retrospective QPR one, a retrospective Crystal Palace one. Obviously, there's the All or Nothing series. There was Leeds, Maker's Dream, was that called? Um, I think what's different is that you are getting more and more production companies who are effectively buying the clubs, that they are clearly looking at, certainly in, in the case of, of Crouch and Dulwich Hamlet, mm. they the people bankrolling the documentary looked at the success of Sunderland Till I Die and thought, right, let's do that. And I, I guess as part of their kind of production expenses, they thought, well, 
we we need someone to ha- there need to be states in the documentary both you and james work in television much more than i do you'll know that there have to be states and the state there is that is that crouch is on the board at dulwich hamlet I, I don't really know why he has to be on the board at dulwich hamlet it doesn't really make any sense for him to be on the board you then have the the example of ryan reynolds and rob mcleny at Wrexham, who've been fairly upfront about the fact that they have bought the club to make a documentary hmm. um and there's a couple of examples in italy as well that uh, north sixth group who are an american investment firm bought Campobasso, who were in Serie D two years ago, and they've got them promoted to Serie C. That's already been made into a, a, a documentary for a YouTube channel. And they they are now owners of Astrally, who basically seem to want them to do the same thing. And I kind of went into the piece thinking, this is, this is clearly bad, that, that there is, there's kind of a twin risk. One is that for the documentary to be interesting, you need to do to create tension within the club. And that's that's not what is good for a club and the the other thing and i think this is the one that the thing that has not not yet been satisfactorily answered at Wrexham. what happens when the documentary has finished mm. where does the club go then but speaking to people involved particularly matt rosetta who's the um the chairman of, of campo basso and, and, and astrally his view is and i think it, it has a lot of sense even if it might offend your, your kind of traditionalist fan is that ultimately for clubs like that how, how are you meant to increase your revenues because you're not going to sell TV rights, just you know, actually a Serie B. There won't be a lot of money in the TV rights for for, for Serie B. Um, sponsorship deals are limited because there aren't any TV rights, and you know you, you're not going to get big companies coming to you and paying you a lot of money to to be on your shirts or whatever. You can increase ticket sales, and the the only revenue stream available really is content. And I, his view certainly is that that it. The, the two things can run symbiotically that you you sell the content that brings more revenue into the club that improves the club and i think in a in a strictly in a kind of cold illogical sense that works the issue is i think that thing about what happens if the documentary comes first what what does that mean for the club both in the in the here and now in terms of mm. kind of what decisions are being made and and what what choices are being are being made, but also what happens afterwards? Because there is a you know they've sold Reynolds and McElhenney have sold two seasons of of Welcome to Wrexham to FX in the states. Right. If if they're the only two seasons, what do what do they pull out? What, yeah, what happens and then, there? And then you make a documentary about the collapse of Wrexham after McElhenney <laughs> move on. I mean, that's the thing. I, I in a sense, it's surprising that it's taken people to this long to spot the fact that football is just extraordinary gift that keeps on giving in terms of narrative. I mean, you could hire an entire city worth of writers and they wouldn't come up with half the stuff that the Premier League alone comes up with week, week, week in, week out. And this is how people like us make podcasts all the time and hopefully keep them relatively interesting. But it is an interesting, it is an important distinction that you make between people who are simply reporting, as say Sunderland Till I Die did, and people who are actively making the fact that they are making a documentary the theme of the documentary, which is, well, I it, think, what's happening at Wrexham. It changes you from observer to participant. Mm. And that, that is, a, is a really fundamental difference. And I think that's where the risk is. The, you know, the, ultimately, I think there's a limit to how many documentaries about struggling football teams set in post-industrial Britain that people can possibly consume. But you could feasibly make Sunderland till I die at quite a lot of clubs, to be honest, because, all right, not everyone's had the, the, the kind of the collapse of Sunderland, but that, you know, a lot of the themes will be the same, but it's interesting that they, that that does seem to have had a real influence on this, mm. this push. I mean, Rob, Rob McElhenney, I think has, has admitted that, that he watched Sunderland till I die in the, in the first lockdown and then called the person who's now, there was a piece in the athletic to do your own advertising for you. The guy who's now, Chief exec, I think, at Wrexham and called him and said, right, let's do this. Let's find a club to buy and make a documentary. That was what inspired him. The whole Crouch project at Hamlet is is inspired by Sunderland Till I Die. There is a desire to, to, to as always in television, people like them, let's make more of them. But the, the difference is that no one at Sunderland Till I Die had any control on what actually happened. They were simply, mm-hmm. they were reporting it and recording it. This is, it's different when you effectively are the club. You are both the subject and the, the the director it does sort of feed into this to this to the entire structure of football whereby every club has people who are invested in it for all, for all sorts of reasons of course but but a lot of the but a lot of the reasons are not are not to achieve sporting success and you know a lot of the reasons are, are, are purely based on on their own personal 
greed, I, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. So this is obviously this is obviously different. It's obviously something that, that does raise questions and that does sort of open a, a kind of unexplored chapter in terms of where where this will go. But I don't think that this is the biggest issue with with ownership across football, and I think that the sport in itself has. Uh, I mean, it, it went down a rabbit hole long ago in terms of this, and, <laughs> and there's probably no way there's probably no way back um, in in the near future. So it it'll be interesting to see how it goes, and and I think the Wrexham example is a really good one of two two people who've come in as almost total aliens, I suppose, in terms of the situation of Wrexham Football Club, yet yet they do come across so genuinely. Of course they are they do have an acting background, but they really do seem to enjoy participating within the club and learning about the club, the area and the fans. And I, I think there's something quite wholesome about that. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that goes. But but football ownership in general is is definitely not not a not a clear cut issue and there's probably no there's probably no moral stance to be had on it as things mm. stand it does make you worry though that historic clubs like AFC Richmond are in some way getting hijacked <laughs> by these uh, these productions for I don't know whatever dramatic ends they have in mind anyway very good that brings us to the end of today's show uh, Monday uh, we return with many if not all of the verdicts from that massive weekend of international qualifying matches so do join us for that listener uh, for now though it's many many thanks uh, to colin uh, to james and to rory and to producer charlie and you too uh, listener have a great weekend and we'll catch up with you monday you've been listening to the totally football show part of the athletic podcast network listen ad free on the athletic app and discover bonus content by following the athletic uk audio plus on apple podcasts Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.